teaching for this evening is based on Psalm 120. And this is God's word. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the boom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, we started a new sermon series here in the book of Psalms. Uh, at these 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, which all have something in common. They all have the same title, the Psalms of Ascent. And we spent a little bit of time last week getting a little bit of an overview uh, of these psalms. I was originally going to start with Psalm 120 last week, but the more I thought about it, I thought we should take a little time and, and orient ourselves. And uh, in case you weren't here, I just want to give a, a really quick recap of that before we jump into Psalm 120, that these psalms most likely were sung by Israelites uh, at least three times a year when they would journey from their homes to Jerusalem for the ma- three major feasts of the year. And they'd sing these songs. And as a result, these songs, not only were they used for the, the, the literal journey, but they've become understood as, as a metaphor to describe what does the life of faith look like? What are its ups and downs? Where is it ultimately headed? And when you, you stop and, and you slow down and you pay attention to, to these 15 psalms, we, we notice two really important ingredients or elements that I just I want to keep in front of you to help you as we uh, make our way through these. The, the first thing that we see is there's a pattern, and it's not linear. It's actually cyclical, seasonal. There are five groups of three psalms in these 15 psalms. And in each of those groups, the first one begins in a moment of distress, followed by a psalm that describes God as our help. And the third in the group describes a safe arrival at home. And for the psalmist... To talk about home is very specific. It's to be where God is present. And there's no place in in an Israelite's mind where God is more present than in the temple in Jerusalem where heaven and earth overlap. So, first of all, we realize that these are, that the journey of faith is cyclical, but they also, it's not just on repeat indefinitely like you're on a treadmill, running nowhere. As we make our way through these psalms, we're actually moving towards the destination of faith, which is really important to hear and to notice because so often, so often, the life of faith actually feels like it's going backwards. Those are the two things I want to keep in front of you, that these psalms are intended to show you Uh, what the life of of faith is really like, and that it's actually moving somewhere, that you are making progress, that God's committed to that. 
He's committed to getting his people home. And so tonight we're going to begin this journey of faith in these 15 Psalms with Psalm 120. And immediately what we discover is that the journey of faith is also a test of faith. That's where we begin this journey. And notice, just by way of initial observation, how do we know that the journey begins in the midst of testing? Well, notice verse 1. The psalmist describes that he's in distress. Notice verse 5. Woe to me. That's a term of great grief and mourning and sadness. And not only that, in verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist is living in the midst of a place and in the midst of people and neighbors who are hostile to everything that he stands for, everything he longs for. This is a a situation of severe testing and conflict and struggle. I don't know if you um, have ever heard of the, the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed or the movie in which Reese Witherspoon stars. I, I read the book and watched the movie in the last several months. I thought it was really good. It's, it's a bit dark, I'll say. She takes some rather dark turns in, in her life. But in this book, she chronicles her journey on the Pacific Crest Trail. She begins in Mojave, California, and hikes for 94 days, 1,100 miles, by herself, to the border of Oregon and Washington. And the main catalyst for this journey is that her mom had, not too long before this, probably a year or two or so, I think that's right, had died of cancer. And she was spinning out of control. And so she embarks on this journey. And one of the things you notice through this whole story is she's tested again and again. She's tested about her knowledge of backpacking, which was really not very much at all. Uh, She was tested about her own courage. She was tested about her own stamina, her life choices, her beliefs, her capacity to grieve. That this journey, it tested every part of who she was both what she knew and what she didn't know. And so when we come to Psalm 120, there are a lot of things that we could draw out about the journey of faith that are testing, that test us. And I just want to look at three. We're going to look at the test of remembering, the test of letting God be God, and the test of patient endurance. So first... Let's look here at the test of remembering in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. At the very beginning, what I want you to see, the test of remembering begins with remembering what God is like. And the very first thing we discover at the very beginning of this journey, in the midst of his distress, is God answers. God hears that he listens, that he responds, that when you cry out in distress to this God, he is not indifferent, he is not deaf, 
He hears and he answers. Think about it for a moment, just to pause on this. What's one of the most important things for you to know when you are in the midst of severe trial and struggle and disappointment and despair? Perhaps one of the most important things is that you know someone hears you. And when someone hears you, that also means that they are near you. So at the very beginning, I want you to just make this simple note, this basic point, that this psalm, as a, this first idea of a test of remembering, it tests, do we remember what God is like? That he answers, that he hears. And at the very beginning, we really do learn perhaps the first great lesson about the journey of faith. Notice here, if you flip down to verse 5, the psalmist says, I sojourn in Meshech, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, you probably have no idea where those places are. All you need to know about those two names is they, could, they represent places that could not be further from Jerusalem or are more hostile to what you would find in Jerusalem. The psalmist is here describing that he is in a situation where he is alone, he is isolated. All of his best efforts end in a sense of futility and failure. And in that situation, God answers. And he discovers that this God that he knows and believes and trusts in will never leave or forsake him. That no matter where he finds himself, he is never beyond the hearing and the reach of this God. And in fact, as, as the church living after the death and resurrection, we need to hear in that an, a foretaste or a, uh, an echo, actually, of Jesus. In the very last verses of, of Matthew's gospel, when he says the closing words are, I will be with you to the end of the age. So the first a test of remembering is remembering what God is like, but not only what he's like, but how he answers. You might wonder here, what, what does it mean that God, how did God answer uh, this psalmist? Because he says in verse 1 that God answered him, but then the rest of the psalm kind of sounds like he's still in a pretty bad situation. So what does he mean that he answered him? And what do you need to, to know? In the psalms, whenever you see a psalm that says, I cried out to God and he answered me, there are basically two ways to understand what answered prayer means. The first is you, you may come across a psalm where the, the psalmist says, I, pr- I cried out to God, he answered me, and the rest of the psalm is really written from the perspective of God having delivered the psalmist from a bad situation. And he's looking back on that, and he's recounting what God has done for him. But there's another way that answered prayer gets used in, in the Psalms. It's an answer of reassurance, of God assuring his people that he will deliver them, but that deliverance has not yet come. And that's what we find here in Psalm 120. 
is here, he gives them an answer of assurance, of rescue that is yet to come. Now, what's also, I think, interesting is that he doesn't actually spell out the answer in verse 1. And so I just want to reflect on with you for a moment. Uh, wouldn't you like to know <laughs> what God answered? And I actually want to suggest to you that the answer that God would give one of his people is so crystal clear and loud in the Bible that it's impossible to miss. And what might that answer be? I'm sure there are a number that we could come up with, but perhaps the most prevailing answer is the answer that God gives again and again when he says to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again and again, some 80 plus times or more, that is how God refers to himself when he speaks to his people. I am the Lord your God who rescued you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. I'm the one who set you free. Now, whatever the particulars were that God answered this psalmist with in these particular circumstances, I am confident were entirely consistent with that message, that God says, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you, my people, out of Egypt. I have rescued you. So that is how God answers. We need to remember how he answers, but then what about why does God answer? Why does God repeat himself that much as we see in the Bible over and over? And I would argue the psalmist is referring to here and the assurance and the answer that he gets. Well, I think it's not so much, as one writer put it, it's not so much to tell us something we didn't know, but to bring into recognition what is latent, what is forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed. You see, why God answers and remembering why God answers is because when we are in the midst of this journey of faith, particularly in seasons of distress, we don't don't think straight, we don't remember well, we don't believe truly, we don't act well, we don't speak well. And God answers and says the same thing to us again and again precisely when we need to hear it. Not because it's something new, but because sometimes it's so hard to remember what God is like and how he answers and why he answers in the midst of the distress. So that's the test of remembering, which actually then sets us up for the second test of letting God be God. Look in verses 2 through 4 here. Verse 2 is really... The, the outflow of the assurance and reassurance that he has gotten from God in crying out to him. And so he prays again and says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And you're, you're meant to hear in that um, a description, a vivid description of the enemies of the psalmist here, who, if you look down in verse 7, he describes as those who hate peace. 
The psalmist is asking for rescue. And the, the very first part of this test of letting God be God is simply this, trusting in God's power to rescue. Not relying on your own resources. Not scheming for ways to deliver yourself from something you simply cannot. But instead, turning to God and asking Him to deliver you. And what I want you to notice here, the psalmist does something for us in, this, in, these, in these couple verses, verse 2 through 4. He actually teaches us and shows us how to avoid two opposite but very dangerous errors. The first one would be to compromise. To compromise to the priorities and the ambitions of his enemies, as he describes them here, as deceptive and lying with no interest for the peace that God would desire. Or the opposite and equally dangerous is that not just compromise, because that might be easier, more palatable to us and to our neighbors, but animosity, a growing sense of self-righteous indignation of how could people be like that? And because they are like that, we need to quarantine ourselves off and stay as far away as we can and realize that they're hopeless and they're helpless. Those are two equally opposite and dangerous errors that the psalmist here, by trusting in God's power to rescue, begins to show us how to navigate between. But how does, how does he show us this? Look in verse 3 and 4. He says here, in the midst of his praying, as if he were speaking to these enemies, he says, what shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, lots of imagery here. You might want to jot down Psalm 64, which uses the same language and helps us understand what he's talking about here. In Psalm 64, verses 2 to 4, here's what we read. It says, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. And then just a couple verses later, the psalmist describes God in the situation. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. What's what's he saying here? In these few verses, he's not only saying that letting God be God means trusting God to rescue, but it also means trusting God's right to judge. These are verses of judgment, of justice, of reckoning. And if you were here maybe while we were doing our series in Galatians, towards the very end we talked about the relationship between whatever you sow is what you will reap. That's the idea here, is that the psalmist is praying that God would actually turn back on his enemies the fruit of their labors. That the lies and the deception, the disregard for peace, which in the Bible is that, that very rich word of shalom, of wholeness, 
of reconciliation, of relational mending, of social uh, healing. Here, he is describing for us, God has the power and the right to judge. Now, why is this so important in the midst of this journey of faith? And it's a little bit counterintuitive. But see, if you don't believe that God hates injustice and deception, if your view of God is, I really don't like that, that this whole idea of God of, God of judgment. I really like the idea of God as, as loving. To, to be straight with you, if that's your understanding of God, you believe in a God who doesn't really care. Because think about your own life and the people you love. If someone does something to someone you love that is wrong and evil and unjust, you cannot just passively sit by. You intuitively want justice to be done. God cares about evil and wickedness. And this is where it's maybe counterintuitive to believe in God's judgment is actually very good news. It's comforting. It means that He is not going to let things go on as they are indefinitely. And in fact, in the midst of the struggle of the journey, what, is, what you most need is to believe that God really does care. That he will make things right. He will set things right. And why is that important? Because that belief enables you to actually work for peace. And not resort to your own schemes, your own vengeance, your own revenge. Which quite frankly is at the heart of of the wars and the dysfunction, whether it be in our own homes, our cities, or between nations. This test of letting God be God, of trusting in God's power to rescue, of letting God, trusting God's right to power and right to judge, how do we know that he will actually do that? And it's by trusting in God's peacemaker, Notice what we read in Colossians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul writes, he says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, we can just barely scratch the surface of this. But I want you to notice two things about that. The cross of Jesus is cosmic in scope. The cross of Jesus has in view everything in heaven above and earth below that wreaks havoc, that undermines God's design and purposes for his creation, this world, for his creatures. And second, 
The only way that true flourishing, true peace, according to God's design, can come through the cross. That the cross of Jesus is the only mechanism whereby God's judgment and his mercy meet and hold out to all of us the possibility of peace, working for peace, and flourishing among one another and in our city, even when it doesn't work. Because our efforts are not the end of the story. Our efforts are but indicators and pointers towards the one who can bring peace and has accomplished it and will bring it to its fullness one day. And so we have the test of letting God be God. And this brings us to the last test of patience. Now I want you to notice here, to to, to believe in God's judgment doesn't mean that we sit back and are simply passive or silent. That's just not how the psalmist describes himself here. If anything, he is not silent. He's crying out for help. And he is actively engaged when he says in verse 7, I am for peace. He's not passive, nor is he silent. But what does he do? He cries out in sorrow and he doesn't give up. Does that sound at all familiar? Jesus, on the night when he's betrayed, you know what he does? He cries out. Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Patience is not passivity or silence. But also, this test of patience also, we need, an, we need something to follow. And notice what Peter says, the Apostle Peter, about Jesus. In his first letter, he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And listen to this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What I want you to see as we come to a close is that this test of patience, it presses us to really have to ask the question, what is God doing? What is God doing in the midst of this journey, especially when testing and trial and distress are where we find ourselves? And I would tell you that that's a very difficult question to answer, and I, I'm reluctant to tie it down to any one thing because so much of life this side of heaven is, is not clear to us. God doesn't tell us all the reasons why we go through the things we go through. But most recently, um, Joni Erickson Tata, some of you may know her, her name. Uh, I think she most recently, I think, celebrated or, or spoke... I think it was her 40th anniversary of when she became a quadriplegic. 
And she said something in, in commenting and talking about, uh, reflecting on those 40 years of suffering and trial and difficulty. And, and it's one of the most profound things I've heard in a long time. She said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I think that's been tweeted. It's been all over the place. I see you guys nodding. That is, that is about as good of an answer as I can give you. But when that sinks in, especially when you, you understand that through the, the prism or, or through the cross, God permits what he hates, the death of his son, in order to accomplish what he loves, the rescue of sinners, that will make you patient. That will enable you not to give up. That will give you the freedom to cry out in distress, asking for help, and to actually be reassured that the one to whom you cry out to hears you. So let me pause and leave us there for this week with Psalm 120. The journey has begun. And this is a psalm at the very beginning that I think is meant to help us to navigate the tests of faith that we will encounter along this journey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we begin looking at these psalms together and try to understand them under this idea, this theme of walking with you, living a life lived upward towards you, of this journey of faith, we pray that as we encounter the variety of experiences and reactions and ups and downs that we find in these psalms, we pray that you would help us to make these words our words, that they would become words with which we can answer you and respond to you and to hear again, perhaps not new things, but things that we forget. So, Father, we ask that you would actually help us as you test us to make us complete, lacking in nothing, to remember you, to let you be God, and to find the grace to endure in patience. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.